This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 309. this completely dysfunctional and screwed up idea that work is our purpose. And therefore, if we are not working, we are purposeless. So what is the point of a human being who's not working? Hi there, and thank you for listening. This is the Read to Lead podcast. My name is Jeff, and it's the podcast dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. Each and every week, we dig into an author's new book and into topics like leadership, personal growth, marketing and sales, jobs and career, entrepreneurship, and much more. You see, I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. I see my job as helping narrow your reading list and bringing you key insights and valuable ideas from today's best books. One of those is a brand new book written by Celeste Headley. She was just on the show about four months ago to talk about her last book, Out today is her brand new book called Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. I'm going to ask Celeste to share about challenging the idea that work is good and idleness is bad, how tracking her own time led to the realization that she and all of us have more than enough, what research says about focused work and how to achieve it, and plenty more. I don't know about you, but with the proper precautions, I'm not letting the coronavirus put a damper on my travel schedule. If you have an upcoming workshop, work event, or conference, and you're looking for your next speaker on topics like leadership and personal growth, I encourage you to connect with me. A couple of ways you can do that. You can email me directly, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com, or visit my website, readtoleadpodcast.com slash speaking. Celeste Headley is an award-winning journalist, professional speaker, and best-selling author of books like We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, that's the book we dove into a few months ago here on the show, and Herd Mentality. In her 20-year career in public radio, she's been the executive producer of On Second Thought at Georgia Public Radio and anchored programs including Tell Me More, Talk of the Nation, All Things Considered, 1A, and Weekend Edition. She also co-hosted the national morning news show, The Takeaway, from PRI and WNYC, and anchored presidential coverage in 2012 for PBS World Channel. Celeste's TEDx talk, sharing 10 ways to have better conversations, has more than 20 million total views to date. Again, her new book is called Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and underliving. Welcome officially uh, back to the show. I think you win the award for uh, shortest distance between two appearances. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> yes. Well, I know when uh, your publicist approached me about uh, having you on, she uh, mentioned this book or that book, the previous book or this brand new book. And I said, well, let's do both. So uh, I'm very glad to have uh, made that decision because it's been well worth my while to jump into to your work. I want to ask you in regard to do nothing, uh, Celeste, what was going on in your life and, and work and, and at home that brought you to the realization that, that this is a book that has to be written? Yeah, it's interesting you phrase the question that way because the book really did start out as just a way for me to solve. It didn't start out as a book, mm. right? It was just, I was trying to solve my own problem, which was that I was exhausted all the time and getting sick and just unhappy and overscheduled and all those things that so many people are. The thing was, is that when I started talking to my friends about what I was researching, 
almost universally their response was, oh my God, that's me. That's Mm. me. That's me. And what's more is as I did the research and started to realize, you know, this isn't a problem with our tech. This isn't a problem with any individual job or, (laughs) or any individual person or any individual city. This is a societal problem and a cultural problem that has been generally getting worse for the past two to 300 years. Mm. Um, That's when it became a book. Mm. You mentioned the history of the last two or 300 years. Uh, and, And I appreciate it the look back at, at where we've been and, and how we've gotten to where we are. Can you speak a bit to some of that history, maybe specifically the fight for an eight-hour workday and how you're less than a century later, well, we've kind of let that slide. <laughs> yeah, isn't that interesting? Because when the, when the Industrial Revolution first began, they had never had to deal with the issues of the eight hour day, mm. right? And that's because people's work days were naturally pretty short. They worked less than half a year, even serfs in mm. the dark ages, mm. um, because time in itself wasn't valuable. It was what you specifically what you produced we were task based so it, you know a wheel broke and you'd go to a wheel right and what was valuable was the wheel he produced right mm-hmm. but then the industrial revolution came and what became valuable was your hours and so when the industrial revolution began they weren't prepared they didn't have protections in place um there's even reports of employers during that time adjusting the clocks throughout the day to try to to make uh, their workers think it was still not quite closing time yet and they could steal their time. Mm. I mean, literally, they were stealing time as though it were jewelry. Wow. Yeah. So then that's when the, the push back began, when they began fighting to work less hours. And I mean, we're talking about, can we work less than 14 hours a day? Would that be okay? <laughs> um, and they eventually landed on the eight hour workday as being reasonable. But yeah, looking back at that history, it was literally bloody. Mm. I mean, people were literally dying over the effort to, to, to only work eight hours a day. So ultimately, we uh, win that fight uh, eventually. Yeah. But I, I, I think it's fair to, to say most people today don't work or at least don't believe they work eight hours or less a day. They work more, right? Yeah. And usually voluntarily. Right. Um, usually. I mean, we're talking about the number of workers who have zero control over their own hours is fairly small at this point, you know. So... Most people are choosing mm. to take their work home with them. They're choosing to answer emails <laughs> while they're at Chuck E. Cheese with their kids <laughs> and <laughs> all those other times when we when we check our email and we really, really shouldn't. Mm. And and it's a it's a you know, the question of why we do that took me seventy five thousand words to explain. But yeah, we've seeded the ground that our ancestors literally died for. Mm. It's it's tragic. Well, let me jump a, l- a little bit uh, further ahead in history here, speaking um, specifically the last 10, 20 years in this, I think what you refer to in the book is the productivity craze, uh, this desire to turn every waking minute into a productive minute. Um, uh, share some of your thoughts uh, on, on that topic, if you would. Yeah, isn't it? You know, it's it's funny the way this manifests itself. I mean, I have heard from a lot of people who say if they're if they sit on the couch and just watch a movie, 
<laughs> instead of also checking Twitter and checking email and, and all those other things we do, they feel guilty. Mm. So we have like people who, who come home and sit down and they notice that they're their curtains look bad, right? So they start searching on Pinterest. And then two hours later of searching through on Pinterest, they've found the ultimate curtains that can't be ordered, but you can buy this one curtain at Target. And then if you go to the Michaels and get this particular ribbon, you can add it to that and blah, 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 blah. You, you see where I'm going with right, this. Right. <laughs> um, people then invest 30 hours into curtains that A, probably never get finished, let's be honest. And B, their curtains were probably fine to begin with mm. and this is all part of this idea that we it's you know and it's not just productivity it's not just that every minute of our time has to be leveraged it's that it has to be the best mm. we can't just mm. buy toenail clippers we need <laughs> the best toenail clippers <laughs> i know i do <laughs> well discuss if you would uh, celeste uh, gender differences as it relates to this how are women and men impacted differently by uh, efficiency expectations. I really thought I would find, when I went to look into gender differences, I thought I would find that men were more impacted. Mm. And I will say that both genders are very, very much impacted. Nobody gets away scot-free. But it mm. turns out the women are, are feel a heavier burden from it. Um, it. Because women are expected to multitask, mm. not just in work, but in home. In fact, I think it started at home where they were supposed to be baking a roast at the same time that they darned their husband's socks and take care of all the children, <laughs> right? right? Um, and so that when, then when they came into the workplace, that was expected to continue. The women are supposed to not only do their jobs, but they are way more likely to be responsible for morale in a company. Mm. They're the ones that are expected to order the donuts for the meetings and remember birthdays and all those other kind of things. Right. So surprisingly, women often see their workplace as a haven. Men in general, and again, we're talking about statistics, so these are all just trends, mm. but men in general see the, the home, their own home, as their refuge, as a place for them to relax. Women do not. They feel more stress when they walk through the door at the end of the day. So it just turns out that women just don't have a place to go where they can relax. Mm. And this whole, whole idea of, of multitasking is a uh, fallacy anyway, right? It's just Oh, it's such a myth. <laughs> it's just a complete myth. W w women are just better at it than men, quote unquote, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think the better way to say it is, is women are not quite as sucky at it. <laughs> right, right. By a tiny margin. <laughs> I love it. Women are less sucky. <laughs> uh, how would you respond, uh, Celeste, to someone who says working hard is, is good and idleness is, is bad? Yeah, well, that's kind of what we've been told uh, our mm. whole lives, and not just our whole lives, but our parents, our grandparents, mm. our great-grandparents, and going back. That was part of the Protestant work ethic. And it goes even further back than the Industrial Revolution. Think back to what Benjamin Franklin was telling us mm. during the founding of our country, um, this idea that of the self-made man, right? The, mm. um, the person who had success and deserved it. And it was it was partially this mythology that was created so that people like Rockefeller could be seen as virtuous because if he is wealthy, it's because he worked that much harder mm -hmm. than everybody else and deserved it. 
but that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) That is patently not true. And yes, we have this moral idea that the harder you work, the more deserving you are. And if you don't work hard, you deserve whatever is coming to you. Mm. It's this, this completely dysfunctional and screwed up idea that work is our purpose. Mm. And therefore, if we are not working, we are purposeless. So what is the point of a human being who's not working? You know, and it's one of sort of the fundamental questions I, I sought to answer, which is, is work an inherent need? Do we have to work? And the answer is, you know, the answer is no. Mm. A human being can be absolutely perfectly happy and content and healthy without working a day in their life. Mm. One of the reasons there's so much emotional toll for people who are unemployed is not because their biology or physiology or neurology requires work. It's because society requires it. Mm. And the cultural pressures to always have a job are so strong that, yes, you can be emotionally damaged by a, a lack of a job. But that's only because of the culture. It's not because that's what human beings need. Now, earlier in our history, so much more time, uh, or, or I, guess, I guess I should say leisure was valued so much more than it is now. And it was it didn't have, have the stigma that it does now. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. And in fact, leisure was how sort of like how you bragged about your status, right? Mm. You had all those gentleman adventurers (laughs) (laughs) who would go off and break into Egyptian tombs or or have their collection of butterflies or whatever it was, right? You know, your leisure time filled with hunting or shooting arrows or playing croquet. Even closer than that, I mean, I just think back to my grandparents. At one point, Jeff, there was this moment, which I clearly remember, where I sat down on the couch and I was just feeling just done in, Mm. completely exhausted. This would have been like 2017. And all I wanted to do was just sit there. (laughs) And I started looking around my house and noticing all the things that I had that my grandmother didn't have, the things that saved me time. Mm. Um, like my microwave and my dishwasher and my robot vacuum and all the other things in my house that saved me time. And so I started walking around the house with a notebook and I started adding up the time that I saved that my grandmother didn't have. Mm. And and the comparison was important because my grandmother worked very, very hard, but she also had multiple clubs she belonged to. And, you know, when they went on vacations, they would show their vacation slides. Remember that quaint mm-hmm. practice and rotary club? and PTAs and all these other things that she did, cards with her friends and neighbors on Friday nights. And yet I have on average somewhere between 20 to 30 extra hours per week that she didn't have. Mm. So how is it that I don't have time, (laughs) right? I don't have time to hang out with my neighbors. That's complete crap. Of course Mm. I do. So where is the time going? And that's sort of what sent me off uh, uh, to find literally on a search for my lost time. Mm. And uh, obviously the point is it's not unique to you. It's we're we're all on the same boat or most of us are anyway. Um, Exactly. What what impact, Celeste, would you say is our desire to make our communication more efficient having on us as a, a species? 
Yeah, it's odd because first of all, it's a delusion, and I, and I think I talked to you about this the last time mm. I was on the show was that you know we think that email is more efficient and right. saves us time, and it absolutely does not. But it has a massive impact that we persist in this delusion because the human body and mind do not recognize digital communication as actual social interaction. Mm. You know, a rose by any other name may smell as, smell as sweet, but a message in digital language <laughs> does not accomplish <laughs> your task, right? Yeah. So we think that we're getting the exact same thing done by sending a text message as if we called, but we are very literally not. Not only is the message not as clear as we think it is, not only is it very much prone to be misunderstood, but all of the social benefit that a human being takes from the phone call is not found in that text message. So we expend all of our social energy on social media and emails, et cetera, et cetera, but we're not getting that benefit. We need to have a feeling of belonging and we're not getting it. And so we have what medical doctors have called a loneliness epidemic all over the world. And before you scoff at loneliness, it's very detrimental. It's, it degrades your internal organs. Being lonely is as bad for a human being as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Mm. So it is pretty serious that we are choosing to communicate in the way that is A, not clear, and B, not fulfilling our need for social connection and belonging. Is it safe to assume, Celeste, that um, for uh, young people, um, millennials, let's say, who, who've grown up in a world where, say, texting has always existed, is there is there more of a possibility of concern when it comes to loneliness and suicide and that sort of thing in that group than, say, other groups because they don't know a world without some of these things? Well, millennials will tell you, as they've told me, that that's not them. That's Gen Z. Mm, mm. <laughs> um, but it is true that millennials are lonelier than the older generation. I'm Gen X. Mm, they're lonelier mm. than me. They're lonelier than the boomers. Gen Z, it's possible once we start getting good data on Gen Z, we may find they're even more lonely. Now, I will say this. Millennials' social skills are no less developed or advanced than a boomer's. And in fact, millennials are better listeners than boomers are. The difference is that a millennial is more likely to believe that texting back and forth with a friend is the same as a, as a phone conversation. Boomers will text back and forth, but they they know it's not good. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I we have to be careful about separating it into age groups because this is a, a vast societal problem. And, you know, many of the managers that are demanding the long work hours and demanding that you send emails or all those other things, right. those are boomers. Mm. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so focusing on one particular age group is not going to help us all that much. Mm. Well, much of my questions to this point have, have been uh, into part one of Celeste's book, The Cult of Efficiency. I want to move now to part two, Leaving the Cult, which I, I love that title. How did tracking your own time Celeste, lead to the realization that when it comes to time, you had more than enough. Yeah, because I, I, if you had asked me how I was spending my time, I would have been wildly inaccurate. <laughs> and it turns out that is not particular to me. <laughs> we are not very good at knowing what we do with our time. Mm. Quality is called time perception, which is how accurate you are in knowing how your hours are spent. Mm. And it's relatively rare for people to have high time perception, but people with high time perception are not only very productive, but they're happier. Mm. 
Hmm. So I had to actually go for weeks. I just bought a regular notebook. I did not search the reviews on Pinterest to find the <laughs> ultimate one. And for a couple of weeks, I just tracked my time. I actually think I spent three or four weeks. Um, so like every couple hours, I would just write down what I had done in the previous hours hmm. in like 30 minute increments. And so whereas if you'd asked me, how much time did you spend looking through boots on Zappos.com, I would have said, oh, about a half an hour. No, it was more like 90 minutes. Hmm. So we consume social media like we do a bag of popcorn at the movies, totally <laughs> mindlessly, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I realized is I only really have five or six free hours a day. Hmm. And how much of that time did I want to spend on social media? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> so it took some really honest, honest record keeping for me to realize I was spending far more time doing things that I didn't really want to do. And one of those things was email, for example. And I was like, okay, I have to get control of my email because I don't want to be spending two. If I only have five or six hours, I don't want two of them to be spent answering email. Mm. Well, I think it's safe to say that uh, playing the uh, comparison game has uh, added to our stress levels uh, the more we play it. And it, I think it's a game we all play to a degree. How has the comparison game, though, changed in your view over the last 20 years? It's such a great question because it, it really has changed. Mm. I, I think one of the sociologists that I quoted says that we're no longer keeping up with the Joneses, we're keeping up with the Kardashians. <laughs> and the reason for this is that, A, in my parents' time, they would have had like a neighborhood barbecue or whatever, and one of our neighbors would have come over and bragged about their new grill, <laughs> right, or their new Dodge Charger, so basically everybody in your neighborhood and most of your friends are usually making about the same money as you are living mm. whatever same class that you are. Mm. And so everyone was looking to get to get into the class just above their own. Mm. So if they're middle class, they want to get into upper middle class, etc. Now we do not actually know our neighbors. <laughs> we <laughs> rarely interact with our friends on mm. that kind of level. And so we're comparing ourselves to Cardi B and uh, the Trumps and the Kardashians, mm. etc. And that's absolutely unattainable. It's shocking. If you ask people what they think of as wealthy, they talk about people who are making millions. Mm. Their idea of what is wealthy now is completely out of proportion. Like if you would ask an economist, they'll tell you, well, wealthy is, you know, over half a million a year or whatever it may be. Um, so we have this really skewed idea of success, and yet that's what we're aiming for. As, as, as you wrote the book, I know you did some experimentation with your own workday and how long you worked without breaks and cutting out distractions. Can you speak a bit to focused work and what you found to be, though I know it's different for everybody, uh, the, the ideal focus to break ratio? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is, is that we're just not doing focused work. Mm. I, I look over people's shoulders and I see them with a internet open and like 40 tabs open <laughs> and their email inbox and their cell phone sitting next to them, not realizing that their brain is concerning itself with every single one of those tabs. Mm. Like it's trying to keep track. So that's number one. We rarely get to focus, but focus and deep thought is what is needed if we're going to really get the benefit of our big brains, our big homo sapien brains. So I did start experimenting and I, I spent at least two or three weeks covering up every clock I could find. <laughs> 
And I would just work until I got to start getting distracted. And then I would take a 15 or 20 minute break and not work. (laughs) (laughs) And then I would come back and start again. And I, I did end up finding that I only have four, maybe four and a half hours of focused work a day. That's it. That's all I've got. Mm -hmm. And I need to take a break every 45 to 50 minutes. And again, as you say, it's different for everybody. Mm -hmm. But that's actually kind of average. You know, they've studied all these different people who most of us would call incredibly productive, like Mm -hmm. Charles Darwin or Charles Dickens. And they worked like four hours a day. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) And then they walked their dogs and took baths and drank tea and you know, all these other things. And so, yeah, that I, I turn out to be average in that particular case as well. But it is something that you have to find for yourself. And there's a number of studies you cite within the book about uh, companies, for example, cutting back on work hours and then seeing productivity go up, right? Isn't that interesting? Um, the one that I, I talked about a lot was Selgrenska Hospital. And I think one of the things that struck me about that one so much was because we think of the medical profession as just requiring mm. those punishing hours. I mean, how else could you do it? But they ran an experiment. They were, were fully funded. They expected to have to hire a ton of more people because in an orthopedic unit, they decided that nobody would work longer than I think it was six hours at a time, mm. which is just insane. <laughs> right. But they were in trouble. They had like months long wait wow. to get into the OR at this hospital. So they were prepared, like I said, to hire a bunch more people, except they found out they didn't have to. Productivity went up and the wait time to get into the OR and get your surgery done went down to just weeks. And then and, and that's because when people had fewer hours, they really made use of those hours. <laughs> Funny how that happens. <laughs> Isn't it? And then they went home and they got real rest. And they made fewer errors. Turns out when you're not exhausted, you don't screw up as much. So, yeah, and this has been replicated in a number of different industries. Microsoft, I think, recently gave numbers to one of its Asian offices and and showed the same results. They get replicated over and over and over again. You know, think of it this way, Jeff. Imagine an an accountant today, right? Mm -hmm. Now, think about that same guy in the same job in 1965. I mean, it's clear that it takes way less time to get that job done today Mm -hmm. than in 1965, right? I mean, we can all accept that. Mm -hmm. So why is he sitting at his desk for 40 hours? (laughs) Good good question. Parkinson's law strikes again. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly so. Well, um, we talked a little bit earlier about leisure. Uh, share, if you would, sort of this idea of investing in leisure time. What are, what are some ways, in other words, that you've managed to invest in leisure? Well, I, I schedule leisure in. So I schedule in social time and I take my dog for two or three walks a day and they're long. They're like 45 minutes mm. each. One of the biggest changes is that when I reach a natural stopping point, which happens to us all, where we just stop for a moment and we go, oh, okay, done with that. In, in past years, I would have said, okay, what's next? <laughs> and checked my list and moved on. And now I just say, all right, I'm going to sit down for a minute. I'm going to read a book. Let me go out on my porch. I have a porch. Why do I have a porch if not to sit on it? <laughs> I'm going to go sit on my porch for a little while, which if you hear wind, it's because I'm sitting on my porch. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, when I say invest in leisure, I invest in it the same way that I invest in any of the other 
so-called self-improvement tactics I have. You know, if I'm willing to buy an app for 10 bucks to track the amount of water I'm drinking every day, I think I can give myself 20 minutes here and there to just sit there. And it does require an investment. When I first started, I had to schedule it like I schedule a gym. Now I've gotten a lot better as the course of the day goes on thinking to myself, okay, when did I stop? Mm. Did I stop at any point? And then stopping. But it does take, it, it, you have, we have to force ourselves to do it <laughs> <laughs> at this point because otherwise the default is to just keep going. I uh, opened your book uh, around noon on Sunday and was feeling guilty because I had spent most of Sunday morning working a crossword puzzle. And when I opened your book, I read, it could be that in searching for ways to get things done faster, we also shorten the time we spend doing fun things like hiking or completing crossword puzzles. (laughs) 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 I I don't have to feel guilty after all. I can do both. (laughs) No, I give you my blessing. (laughs) Well, Celeste, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you that aren't directly related to the book. But before I do that, anything else you want to make sure we know about? I think almost it requires reading the whole book. And I don't just mm. say that for sales, like feel free to get it from the library. But um, <laughs> it, because you, I think we all have to be convinced. Mm. Like I get a lot of pushback <laughs> on, on this particular book. And I think it kind of requires you to sort of read the history and all the scientific research and all of the other mm. evidence before you start to really realize. So it's kind of like, you know, and the cult, the word cult is well chosen because you <laughs> kind of have to be deprogrammed. That's the only thing I would say. Definitely. Well, at the risk of my next two questions, having a hint of um, productivity uh, <laughs> in them, I'll ask them anyway. Um, when it comes to reading, obviously you do a lot of reading, particularly reading to learn. What do you do, if anything, to help retain what you read? Well, I take my notes by hand mm. and, and I don't I don't want to ruin the planet. So I want to save trees. So I got one of those tablets that you digital tablets mm. that you can mm. write on by hand. And then it, it, it transfers them directly into a Word document for me so I can keep track. Mm. But yeah, I use a high an actual highlighter in a book mm. <laughs> and I take the notes by hand, even if I'm quoting directly from a book, at which point the temptation is to to copy it and paste it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I still just write it out longhand with a pen <laughs> on digital paper. And and the, really, that's all that I need. Sometimes I'll go through and I'll sort my notes, which means I'm going and, and revisiting them later at a later time and giving them another look, and which means I'm reading through them again. And that really helps me retain what I've read. And I'll sort them out into you know folders of different topics. And, and frankly, that's we're talking about things that I may not ever, ever plan to use mm. for research or book writing. These are just things that I find interesting. I'll still sort right. through. Them. And research backs that up, doesn't it? Writing things out by hand. There's yes. something about that process that helps it stick to itiveness, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> well, one thing that fascinated me in your book was this uh, ability to go from reading, say, I think it was 400 research pages in a day to uh, 550. Yeah. Are you a speed reader? How do you, how do you do that? <laughs> no, I am definitely not a speed reader. But the brain is so beautifully designed mm-hmm. to function when it's focused. And it turns out all I needed was not an app or, or anything. It was just no distractions. So I had to get away from my computer, not even have it in my sight. Mm-hmm. I would leave my phone in another room. So again, it was not within my sight because just having those within your sight line distracts your brain. 
And when you're focused and not distracted, you can do amazing things, amazing things. Mm. Well, Celeste, in closing, where can we connect with you? For someone who wants to learn more about you and what you do, where should they go? Probably just CelesteHeadley.com. I try to keep everything kind of updated there. And every once in a while, I get a flea in my ear and write a blog. But <laughs> <laughs> most, most of the information is there. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> well, the book, again, is called Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. Celeste, thank you so much for coming back on the show in such a short order. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. A link to Celeste's site, her social media channels, and other links and resources we discussed today could all be found on the blog post I've created just for this episode. You'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 309 for episode 309. For your next speaker on leadership, personal and professional development, or the traits that all successful people have in common, consider yours truly, Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com or readtoleadpodcast.com slash speaking. I'd also love to hear from you if you've got questions, comments, suggestions, or feedback for the show. Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com is the best way to reach me. Next time on the show, we'll welcome Adrian Gostick. He's co-author of the book Leading with Gratitude. That's next week on the Read to Lead podcast. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Readers lead.